Trustee Blue. She's here. She's muted. Yeah. Trustee Esteen. Thank you. Yeah. Trustee Esteen. Trustee Jensen. Present. We have a quorum. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, so the first item indicates the election of the Human Resources Committee Chair, but uh, Trustee Jensen, a past chair, so I well, over I'm to her. Chair. Actually, yeah. I'm still President Trump until noon today. So um, I would like to actually nominate. Um, well, before I do that, I'd like to welcome um, our our soon-to-be interim CEO James Jackson, who I see on the screen. Thank you. Thank and, you very much, um, Trustee Jensen. Welcome, welcome James to our meeting and also welcome Taft Bouquet, our um, chair, who's a, a ex officio member of this committee, a chair of the board. And um, what I would also like to do before I not make a nomination for someone to take over the gavel is to um, say that um, it's been a, a pleasure and I've learned so much on this committee for the past um, year and a half or so, two and a half years. And um, thank very much our um our um chief human resources officer tony redmond for um leading this organization in a tremendous quest for systemness which has gone well in some ways and in some ways it's it's been a challenge but it's been a work in progress and i think we're moving in the right direction and tony um i, I really have to give you a lot of credit a lot of um a lot of strong, strong management skills it's taken, and, and you've really worked to identify everything in this organization that needs to be done. You've put, you've laid it out, you've organized it, you've, you've looked at the organization from top to bottom, and I've learned so much from you, and I know that throughout the organization, from top to bottom, people have learned from you, and, and you, 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 you're you're an excellent manager, and I and I I I've worked in um, different organizations, and I have to thank you for everything you've done. So, um, as I thank say, you, this, I, appreciate I think it. people, um, yeah, I, I I really appreciate everything, all of your all of your work that you helped me with to learn more about both um, what it's like to to um, deal with personnel in a healthcare organization in clinical, especially the. The, the clinical and the, um, administrative parts of it. So with that, I am going to nominate my colleague, Trustee Louisa Blue, to be the chair of this um, HR committee. And I'll ask Louisa if she would please, please accept that nomination. Uh, yes, I'll I do. second that nomination as well. Okay, so I accept the nomination. And with that, then we would ask for a roll call from Rana. Trustee Blue. Abstain. Trustee Esteen. Yes. Trustee Jensen. Aye. And um, with that, the motion. the motion passes, and there you have the gavel, Louisa. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. And, um, Tony, we didn't really get to know each other, but I wish you best wishes to your uh, next chapter. And um, so how, you're still here till March, correct? Correct. That is correct. Okay. All right. Good. I get to still talk to you before then, before you, you leave. Do. We, have, we have work to do. Yes, we do. We do have work to do. And uh, thank you, Tracy, for um, serving 
as a chair of this committee, you know I'll be calling you as well. And before I go through the agenda, is it true we only meet quarterly? Did That's I get correct. that right? Okay, quarterly. Yeah, okay. There, are, there are a couple of things, uh, Trustee Blue. The, you probably want to review the charter at some point. The the HR committee does not have approval authority. That that falls uh, with the full board. Okay. So we've got some background. But. Oh, there we go. Sorry. Um, it's really been an information sharing board. We've talked a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we've developed a number of dashboards that we work on, and I'll share those with you. We can set up some time to go through those and see if they meet your needs or if you have other thoughts on them. Um, and I've been working in a direction around, um, diver although we're very diverse, uh, looking at other areas of equity and inclusion for our employee population. So we can talk about that before you go, and I can lay out what we have, and then we can work on whether or not that meets your, your needs as a as a committee, but generally it has been more on the information and advice. There isn't really anything that gets approved in this committee, uh, which is one of the main reasons it meets quarterly. Uh, Trustee, you're on mute. In the meantime, if there's issues that have to get dealt with, um, who calls for a special meeting of the HR committee? Does that Frankly, it would, I would imagine it's the chair, but we haven't had a special meeting of the HR committee again because they they have no approval power. Okay. Generally, anything that has to be approved has to go to the full board, um, and generally it would be dealt with there if it was a major issue. If it was a labor contract or anything of that nature, it would go there. Uh, it, they don't generally come to this committee. Okay. Would there be information um, updates regarding issues? Yes. That yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll catch up with you more um, as yeah. we progress before you leave. But thank you for that yeah. bit of information. So let yeah. me um, take a look at the agenda again. Oop, wrong agenda. Okay, so I need a, an approval of the minutes of the October 14th, 2020 HR committee meeting. And that would be, I would say I'll move approval, but that would just be um, Taft and myself, who I don't know if Taft was even at that meeting. So yeah, how does how does that work, uh, Mike? Do we still have to approve it, or is it by consensus? So <laughs> there should be a motion, and the motion should be seconded, um, and right. then. Uh, vote and any other member of the committee can vote to approve the minutes or they can abstain from voting if they feel that's appropriate. Okay. I, I was the only one at the meeting on the, in October. Of the, yeah, but well, being at right. is, isn't essential to approving the meeting. I mean, if someone, you know, listened to the recording and um, they could also approve the minutes or if they had received a report on the meeting. So, um, so either way. Okay. So okay. Um, so, was that you, Tracy? Yeah. Trust okay, Trustee Jensen made a motion. Do I have a second? Second. Any other discussion? All those in favor, say aye. Aye. Abstains. Nays. Okay. So we approve the minutes. 
Uh, okay. Uh, if I, yep. sorry, uh, uh, Trustee Blue. So uh, typically when <clears throat> we're doing these uh, virtual meetings, a, a roll call is required uh, in this oh, instance. Okay. But in this instance, since the vote was unanimous, the record just reflected all trustees voted aye. But in the future, uh, just uh, ask Rhonda to do the roll call when you're ready to vote. Okay, thanks. Okay, next we have uh, a presentation on the Alameda Health System's COVID-19 vaccination program. And is Dr. Swift with us as I move out of this? Hi. Yes. Hi. Okay. Can I just check? Can you see the presentation? I can see the presentation. Okay, great. Okay. I'll, I'll manage it for Dr. Swift. Um, let me just... There we go. So uh, Dr. Swift is our Vice President of Population Health and has been at Alameda Health System for almost, if not her entire professional life as a resident and has held many roles here and is currently the VP of Pop Health and is now the unofficial czar of uh, employee mass vaccinations. And so she's working as our physician leader in this area, pulling together the administrative and operational teams to make this work for employees and then beyond employees working with the other clinical staff as we look to vaccinate the, vaccinate the general population. Um, and I'll, I'll just mention this before we move into the, the as you know, the agenda is brief tonight because we then have a special meeting afterwards. So we just have this item and then uh, Richard Espinosa will talk about the Park Ridge issue and that's included in this presentation. So okay. um, I will hand it over to Dr. Swift. Uh, Minnie, just let me know when you want me to advance the slides. Sure. Thank you so much for um inviting me here to talk about our mass vaccination program. Uh, for those of you who were at, I guess, was it last week at the board meeting? Um, we did have, some of this will be a review, um, but as I promised, I have a few slides that may make the tiering um, um, methodology a little bit easier to consume. So um, as you may, I, I thought I'd include, include a slide so you can see the various domains that we're working on. This slide um, is showing, you know, we're looking at vaccine acquisition, storage and distribution. Um, at the time we were, we are currently in phase one. And so we're look, we have started, as I mentioned, vaccinating our patients in post-acute and our AHS staff. Um, we have also moved into phase 1B at this time, and we are in the process of planning for patient vaccinations. Um, we are going to open that up very shortly. Um, and then we continue to refine our communications, reporting, and data, and education. So this is just a bird's eye view of the different categories of work that the task force is um, coordinating. Next slide. Here's a, a bird's eye view. Uh, you may have seen this. This is from the playbook from uh, the CDC's playbook for the vaccination. And it's, I thought it'd be helpful to just understand the different phases across um, the country that we are going to see. So this first phase is one in which um, we're just getting started. Supply may be constrained. There's a tight focus on the vaccination administration. Um, we're administering it in closed settings, meaning hospital and hospital settings, long-term care settings, um, really trying to reach those critical populations who are at most uh, risk for um, death due to COVID and who are essential in our response to the pandemic. 
you can see on the left that there are these phases that are then phase 1A, phase 1B. I'll have a different slide for you. And these keep changing. Sometimes they change multiple times a month. In phase two, that's where we see that um, we hope to be there soon, but we are not, um, that there's likely sufficient supply to meet the demand. There's more expansion into other populations and a broader network. And then phase three is that shift to routine strategy. So this is the overall framework that the CDC is using. Um, we are moving into phase two, we're right at that cusp. Next slide, please. Um, there's been a lot of interest in, in how we are approaching this at AHS. So um, at AHS, we have um, in phase one divided our staff into these three waves. Sometimes it becomes confusing because we're talking about waves. Each wave has, I mean, we're talking about phases. Each phase has a tier. And now inside of AHS, we, to simplify it for everyone, have created these waves. The big picture message here is that wave A, our frontline facing staff who have prolonged, repeated, direct or indirect exposure to patients and infected materials. These are individuals who are working in emergency departments, ICUs, labor and delivery, uh, perioperative areas. And um, we have included here um, the numbers of staff plus additional providers. Um, these numbers don't actually include other staff members like our medical students, um, some other types of students. So we have started incorporating those into these numbers too. Wave B then uh, still are people who are frontline facing, but they don't, their exposure to, to COVID is not as um, intense or as long in duration as the folks in the ICU. So these are people in primary and specialty care clinics, our, our, person, our patient labs. And then wave C, these are the rest of our staff who are essential for our response to COVID and our, you know, functioning uh, critical healthcare operations. We are currently um, in, we have opened up, as I mentioned last, last week, um, we have moved through wave A and B, and on Friday we opened our um, program up to wave C. Next slide, please. So where are we today? Um, well, as of yesterday, we had provided 4,893 vaccinations. Um, of these uh, numbers, 3,203 people have received their first dose um, and 1,690 people as of yesterday um, had received their second dose. We are currently using both Pfizer and Moderna. Moderna is being used in primarily in our ambulatory care settings um, at Newark, Hayward, and Eastmont, where those locations are furthest away from our, um, our, our sub-zero freezers. Um, we vaccinated approximately 70 people with a Moderna last Friday. What are we seeing? Um, we are seeing what is most commonly reported, a sore arm, um, some feelings of achiness, muscle aches, um, low-grade fevers, but not a lot, fatigue. A few people have reported a metallic taste and a headache. These become more common in the second dose. I personally have heard more stories of just feeling not that great after the second dose. Um, but the sample size that I've seen is about 10 to 15 people that I've directly come in touch with. We have not yet seen, um, we've had two, pay, two staff members who had 
reactions that looked like anaphylaxis. Uh, they were served in the ED, but we're not really sure. If we were waiting to hear details if that was really thought to be attributed to um, the vaccine that they received. Um, you may have heard that um, last week there were some concerns with a batch or a lot, a lot of um, Moderna. Um, we do not currently have any of any vials from that batch. Um, other things that we started doing. So we um, have, you know, we we have with these numbers, and we have provided the vaccination to approximately seventy-one percent of the staff who, um, in, you know who may have wanted it. And um, we are planning for patient care. We're hoping to open that next week. Um, in keeping with the county guidelines, um, we're looking at patient, uh, patients who are over the age of 65 or healthcare workers. We heard from the county today that the state has revised their tiering system. And so we uh, stand ready to receive those updates. And we have some early indicators that there may be less of a focus on occupation and more of a focus on age. Um, the last thing I'll say is that uh, we continue to vaccinate patients in our long-term care facilities under the leadership of Richard Espinosa and his team. Uh, we are also starting to provide vaccinations to patients on the inpatient service because we are seeing um, that patients who have received their vaccination in a, non, in a long-term care facility um, this past weekend came to, were admitted to the inpatient service and they were in the window for their second dose. And so we're able to start um, vaccinating patients on the inpatient service for that population. And with that, I'll stop in case there are questions. I think that's the end of my slide deck. It is. Thank you, Dr. Swift. Are there any questions from the committee for Dr. Swift? Um, I know Trustee Jensen had asked her to give uh, background on how we were dealing with this as it related to employees specifically. Uh, and obviously she's done that as well as covering some of the direction we're going uh, with patients. But any feels, please feel free to ask her any questions about this. How many have been vaccinated so far? Oh, 4,000 what? Uh, 4,893. That does not include the folks that went through today. So we should probably add another 200-ish to, to that number, as I'm just guessing. Okay. And then the second dose was a little over 3,000. I've received the first, first dose is 3,200, 3,203, and the second dose is 1690. Okay. Thank you. Um, I have a question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tracy. Is that em employees or in total? That number? Uh, we have, uh, those are only the employees. This does not include, um, and Richard, you may feel free to jump in. This does not include approximately 160 patients that have also been vaccinated. Yeah, so we've um, been able to vaccinate 60% of our residents in our long-term care settings. Question, Minnie, one, one more time. What's the number on vaccination number one? Doesn't that number exceed, and Tony can comment on this, doesn't that number exceed our total employees? Um, it does not exceed our total employees. Um, it is a proc, it's our total employees. Well, you can comment, Tony. 
A total employees are about 5,100. Sorry, I'm sorry 5, to jump back through the slides. The staff is, if you see bottom right here, uh, we have about 5,100 employees. It, it fluctuates a little bit, but that's, that's about right for the employee number. My apologies. For some reason, I had 4,500 number in my head. Thanks, Tony. We had initially, um, you know, uh, conducted a survey to look at interest and try to understand where, you know, how many people may be interested in approximately, um, I, I don't have the exact numbers, but maybe 1,700 people responded. And the number we got from that was about 75% of those people were interested in receiving the vaccination. So we set that as our target. Jennifer, if you, if you don't have a Sorry, question, I, I have another question. Go ahead. I'll ask mine at the end. Um, have have employees? Have you found that any employees have declined? Yes. Um, so it's a little hard to track the declinations um, because we know that um, approximately 420 employees have taken the time to log into Axion, the system that we're using, to tell us that they do not want the vaccination. Um, however, uh, there are many more people who have not logged into Axion to even take the time to do that. Um, and we, as you may recall, we're using scheduling through MyChart, um, through My Alameda Health, a MyChart function through Epic. And so we know that that acceptance rate, that activation rate, I think as of yesterday was around 50%. Now, some of those people were received their vaccination before we went live with that platform. Others are receiving, they could be receiving a vaccination in another place. Um, and so, but we can also use some of that data to, to say, okay, well, people who are not um, activating their account, we're going to take as some form of declination. But these, these other reasons why someone may not have activated their MyChart account, um, kind of confound the picture. So the 400 declinations were, there was in whatever, the, when they declined it, there was not a, a, a response required for a reason to decline. It was just a yes or no. Do you want a vaccine? Uh, I'd have to look into that. I think it's a yes or no question, but I'd have to review that. So each Whenever we do a vaccination, be it flu or this type of vaccination, there's a, there's a specific questionnaire that asks some medical history. And also, are they consenting to receive the vaccination? Or if they're declining, is it for a specific reason? So there are some specifics in there um, that indicate it might be for when we have flu, is it for religious reasons or medical reasons? So there is a way to pass it that way. I'd have to look at the specific one for this. They also have to take the survey twice. So you're consenting, best practice is to consent each time you're vaccinated. And so they consent to the first vaccination, they consent to the second vaccination. As we're tracking it now, we're looking at the acceptance rate or declination rate on that second vaccination um, questionnaire. Obviously, if you decline it the first time, you never get to the second one. The second one is the most current data we have, and, that, and we can see that pretty clearly. A, a couple of things I would just add as, as color, we are passing out that data on declination rates based on ethnicity and gender right now. So we've got a better understanding if there is anything within the data that we that tells us that the, those people accepting the vaccination are of a specific grouping, and that allows us to both message and work with that population. Uh, we will be reaching out. I've talked to SEIU briefly on this. 
um, and I've talked to Dr. Swift about it so that we can have a discussion with them. If we see pockets of populations that are declining, uh, what can we do differently? Is there education required? Is it more information? Is it basic hesitancy so that we're hearing from the employees rather than making some assumptions? Or best guess is at this. Uh, the best people to tell us about it are the employees. Uh, and so as we cut this data by ethnicity and gender, we're going to get a better sense of the areas where we, we have a lower acceptance rate. And we'll do some work both with the unions and with the employees directly because I think in partnership, we're more likely to get a higher uh, consent and then vaccination rate. I forgot to mention that we also have launched a work group to look at hesitancy. So we have a multidisciplinary team with some patient facing staff. We've just met last week and we'll be continuing to meet every week. Um, we have um, a variety of reasons uh, why people have um, declined. So we're putting that together. We'll continue to meet. Um, we're using our lean tools. So we have an A3 that we're putting together. And then we will, um, once we once we have our general approach, then as Tony said, we'll take it to wider audiences for validation and uh, design of interventions. Well, this is obviously, I mean, this is a bigger issue than just this particular disease of course i mean it's a it's a societal issue and but when we have clinicians working with patients and a disease that's this transmissible of course it has to be very carefully monitored and i i i would be interested in knowing what sort of if there is any disciplinary guidelines that are going to be established or already established whether the public health department or the state or um our uh, you know, federal regulators or, you know, how, how this will proceed because I would imagine there will be some sort of um, standards established for vaccine readiness. And, and actually, um, I'm curious, um, Dr. Swift or, um, or Tony or, you know, anyone can address the issues of other vaccines. I mean, per people have to be, have to be, um, show immunity to TB or to other diseases in order to practice in certain areas. So I would think that eventually this would be one of those conditions that would that express immunity would be required. I, well, I'll, I'll give you my HR opinion and then I'll defer mm -hmm. to the clinician on, you know, from a clinical perspective. I think it's more likely to fall into a flu-like uh, disease than a TB-like disease where you would have a seasonal vaccination program if it continues to exist. Flu is not a legally required vaccination. People can decline for certain reasons. And then masking and, and other protective equipment is then used to protect patients and other employees. Um, the state, federal, local government could take some other stance on it. I would think in the short term, that's unlikely. Uh, on, the, on the clinical side, I, I would hand over to Minnie. Currently, we have not uh, made it a requirement or mandatory. Um, we have not received any guidance from CDPH or the county to do so either. I think um, I have heard of a few cases in which healthcare systems have made it mandatory, but I think given the speed, you know, the, I think, yeah, all I can say is for now, um, it's strongly encouraged, but not required. Um, could that change in the future as more and more people are vaccinated? There's more experience with this 
uh, with these vaccines and um, they're more available. Um, right now, there's a, a shortage of vaccine too. So I'm not sure that we're in a position today to make it mandatory for that reason alone. Thank you. Then, then I don't think the, the employees generally, you've got them, you know, if 75% is the current rate, and when we get into flu vaccination, which we know is actually a deadly disease in the absence of a vaccine, and we get rejections of flu, the likelihood of us getting 100% is pretty slim. And then we have to deal with turnover issues and employee rejection, and probably, quite frankly, issues we'd have to discuss with organized labor and what their position is on that. I know CNA has been very resistant to a compulsory flu vaccine on an annual basis, and I don't know whether unions sort of publicly stated position on that. So I, I, I don't think it would be... Even if it was pushed at the, at the state level, I don't know how easily we'd be able to apply it. Certainly not easily or quickly. My questions were going to follow uh, this line because I think I've asked you multiple times, Dr. Swift, in different presentations. So it's good to know the work, the task force is now um, on the job. Um, and I think that information is going to be incredibly relevant so that we can make a plan um, regarding compulsory vaccinations. It's a big deal. And it goes back since vaccinations started. Um, you know, and yeah. polio, the application of polio vaccine was really controversial. People have the right to opt out. Okay. Well, I'm glad we're, we're talking to SCIU. Um, yeah. So uh, next up is uh, we were asked for an update on Park Bridge from uh, Richard Espinoza, who's our chief administrative officer. Uh, it's Espinoza with a Z, not two S's. Uh, and so he will now help us uh, walk through uh, what has been a recent outbreak at Park Bridge. Uh, of COVID-19 and talk us through what steps we've taken there uh, related to employees and patients because it's obviously both groupings. Uh, well, thanks, Tony. Uh, good evening, trustees, and uh, my first uh, opportunity to welcome CEO Jackson. Um, I will give you an overview of uh, the outbreak at Park Ridge. I will start by saying, um, you know, we, we had a very strong first 10, 11 months with COVID uh, management with our post-acute where we only had four uh, positive uh, residents in that 11-month period. And as the surge uh, from Thanksgiving uh, started to surge, we started to see our employees starting to test positive first. Um, I'm going to give you some different numbers because these were the numbers as of last week, but I, I wanted to give you some current numbers as of today. Um, and so as of today, we currently have 25 staff members who are out with COVID. Um, and that ranges dietary department, our environmental services department, uh, a few CNAs, nursing, receptionist, um, laundry, our activity personnel. Um, and so we have done our weekly testing as part of our uh, CDPH and CMS uh, regulatory compliance. And that's how we're identifying um, our positive uh, employees and once we have a positive employee or a positive resident, that moves into testing the entire facility, both residents and staff on a weekly basis. Um, so as part of managing the outbreak and as part of managing staffing, 
um, our nurse leaders have been working the floor to help uh, subsidize some of the nurses who have been out who tested positive. So our director of clinical operations, who is an RN, our director of nursing, who is an RN, our MDS coordinator, who is an RN, our infection preventionist, who is an RN, um, and in the SNF world, it's not unusual to have uh, your nurse leaders work the floor if there is a crisis or an emergency. And so they've stepped in to ensure that we're meeting all regulatory compliance with ratios um, and things of that nature. Um, we've also had EVS and dietary staff support come from other areas of AHS. Um, so as we had a number of dietary and EVS personnel. We had um, some come from other locations to assist. Um, we had contract support uh, with EVS to assist as well. Um, we did have several dietary who were out, but all have returned at this point. Um, we had a total of 47 employees in total who have tested positive since 12-9. And so six employees tested positive between 12-9 and 12-21 our first resident tested positive on 1224. So our employees were testing positive before our uh, residents were testing positive. Um, and so as it's in alignment, as we started to see the surge uh, in the community positivity rate after uh, Thanksgiving, uh, we started to see the same things with our weekly testing of staff. Currently, as I said, have 35 positive staff who are currently out. We have zero that are out on quarantine. The six have come back. Um, so we've had a large number of staff come back off of their quarantine or isolations, which has been great. Um, and as I said, we've been making regulatory compliance for all staffing requirements. We've all been working 18 hour days and weekends just to make sure that we're supporting our staff, making sure our residents um, are safe. Next slide, Tony. Uh, so as I mentioned, our first resident tested positive on 12-24. So there were multiple employees that tested positive prior to this. Um, possibilities of the outbreak can range from uh, a resident who was transferred to the acute setting for a procedure or an ER where there's COVID in the building, uh, in the hospitals, uh, potential of healthcare worker transmission to residents. Uh, it could be a resident sent to dialysis, and there are other residents in the dialysis who, from other facilities who may be positive um, and asymptomatic. So there are multiple ways um, that the outbreak could have started. Uh, as we know, as I mentioned, in our first 10 to 11 months, all of the protocols and all of the mitigation processes that we had in place worked incredibly well and were highly validated by CDPH and by the county. Um, and so what we did to help the staff at Park Ridge was to transfer 10 of those residents um, who were positive to our Fairmont CQU, which is our COVID quarantine unit, to the red zone. And then that way we could lower the census at the building so that we can make sure that the staffing ratio um, were within range and that we weren't overstretching our staff. Um, as of today, all 10 have returned, as well as uh, many of the staff. So we're making sure that we're balancing our census with the ratios and the return rate of our employees coming back. Uh, currently, uh, we're happy to say we only have four positive residents at Park Ridge um, out of a total census of 76 plus two bed holds. So 
a great amount of work has gone into the building. We've worked very closely with our physicians, with our infection preventionists, with the county, with CDPH, um, and following the CDC and CMS guidance of, um, and the majority of our patients are asymptomatic. So we follow the 10-day no symptoms and no fever, and then they're able to be released from isolation with approval of the physician and IP. So um, this is a little off where we say roughly 30 would come off. It was more than that because now we're down to four. Uh, and so we're anticipating by next week, um, we know that one is coming off tomorrow. So we will have three remaining positives in the facility. Uh, and uh, yesterday, CDPH uh, came out to do a validation survey of the mitigation plans, and there were no findings. And so CDPH was able to validate that all of our mitigation processes, all the plans that we have in place, all of the systems we have in place to keep our staff and patients safe were in place during this outbreak. So um, that was uh, refreshing to have an outside third party, uh, the state, validate that. We anticipate having an infection prevention survey as well. Um, and we have a visit uh, tomorrow from um, the infection control of CDPH uh, just to see what our plan, uh, how it worked. And so it's not a survey, it's more of a tour that they want to see the building. Um, since we've done so much work with our CQU, they want to see how we apply those uh, tools in our Park Ridge facility. I think that's all I have. I'm happy to answer any questions. Oh, sorry. Yes, that there was okay. another slide. Just, sorry. Yeah. Just one uh, more so, slide, Trustee Jensen. Yeah, sorry about asked that. A little bit about staffing. Um, yes. So, oh, I have a question for Richard. Yeah, go ahead, Trustee Jensen. Could you go back for a second? Um, Richard, it was a little confusing. Yeah. It, it said that um, you have four positive residents, but then on the slide, it, one, one point said four positive residents and one side point said 20 positive residents. If you could go back, Tony, to the prior slide. Yeah, the slide says nine positive. And so what I'm giving you is today's number. This was when the slides were generated last week. But as of today, there are only four positives at Park Ridge. So four Yeah, so this was posted. Yeah, we had to post this for Friday's date to get it in in for the appropriate sharing and then richard's giving you the latest figures on the on the same well, i know data. i understand but it says that both it says one line says four and one line says 29 can we go back to the previous slide i'm on the previous slide uh hang on my screen is shared stopped sorry i apologize it's not uh, let's try this Okay. Um, slide. Uh, next I one. I think it's the next one. So if you see here, it says currently we have 39 positive residents. Right. Because last week we now have four. Okay, because the slide above that says four returned to Park Ridge on 113. Four returned from the Fairmont CQU. If the sentence oh, I see. I see. positives okay, thanks. were transferred that, 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 to that, that, Fairmont CQU, okay. they all have come back. Right. Okay, so that's just from Fairmont. Thank you, Richard. You're Thank welcome. You. So in total, just for clarity, there are only four in today. Good. Thanks, Richard. Sure. So um, Trustee Jensen asked a little bit about staffing and how we're managing that. So uh, you're basically, is registry increased? The answer is yes. 
Um, we're working with our HR department, the uh, recruitment function within HR to try and assist with this. We have some CNAs. Uh, we have four licensed nurses and eight CNAs coming back on 121. Uh, obviously, we still have staff out, as Richard mentioned earlier. The, the market for SNF clinical registry is very tough right now. So agencies generally have low supply in this market because it's not particularly lucrative. Uh, the bill rates are not high as they are in the, the inpatient side. Uh, and it's been somewhat decimated because people who might work additional shifts uh, are not working at all right now. And there, there's also a lot of fear in terms of the high positivity rates. So we've tried to look at 12-hour shifts because sometimes people prefer working 12-hour shifts when they come from registry. Uh, and uh, Vizient have actually proposed $120 an hour bill rate for SNF RNs, which is incredibly high uh, and, frankly, would still be unlikely to meet all of our needs. Uh, we're seeing on the acute side at $200 an hour for nurses, and nurses still, we had nurses walk out at Alameda Hospital mid-contract because people offer them more money somewhere else. Uh, and so, you know, we're looking at an incredibly tight market right now uh, for SNF. Uh, Richard's team is basically the other ones that are carrying the bulk of this. We're trying to supplement them from the outside, but it is a challenge. And we'll try and keep staffing it, but there's no question it's a very difficult market in the SNF area right now. Okay, and those are the slides we had. Anybody else have any other questions? Thank you, Richard, for that presentation. You're very I'm, welcome. I'm glad folks are getting better. That was a pretty tough outbreak. Um, yeah. With the, the staffing issues for nurses, yeah. what does it look like for other classifications? Um, Nursing is the hardest. Others are usually have been easier. We had a big pickup in EVS workers, particularly at Highland, uh, because we needed we needed additional staffing. That was not a difficult ask. We were able to staff that fair, not easily, but fairly easily. You know, it's a relative term. Nursing is the biggest issue, um, and it and it's particularly on the acute care side. So rates are up. Uh, people are not finishing contracts. They're being offered signing bonuses to go even in for travel assignments. Um, and they are going, you know, the people are following the money. And so we're trying to manage both the cost and obviously the, the ability to relieve nurses. The end of um, COVID leave on December uh, 31st actually alleviated enormous stress on the acute care side and in the other facility as well, but predominantly in the acute care side where we'd had up to 20% of the staff out on a leave, those people returning really has alleviated a lot of pressure. It's, it's not turned off all the stress, uh, but it has made a huge difference. But just to add a little context also is I sit on the um, Public Health Subject Matter Expert Committee and on 1-11, there were 112 active long-term care outbreaks in our county, 34 SNFs and 78 resident care facilities. So just to give some context on how bad the outbreaks are right now, um, not only in California, and I don't need to tell you all in California and in our county, but 112 active outbreaks is just enormous. And so we're all being, um, I, I'm very thankful that our Fairmont, South Shore and Subacute buildings have zero. They've been able to really manage. Um, I would also say there's 
less movement in our South Shore and subacute buildings, um, but our Fairmont building, because of the CQU, um, has really helped us manage how those positives come in. So the teams have done remarkable work, um, but just wanted to give some color to um, what's happening in our county. Any other questions? Okay, thank you. So we do have um, a special meeting of the trustees. We're running 15 minutes late. Mike, is there anything else on the agenda that we need to cover? Uh, no, that's the end of this agenda. Okay, right. So can I have a motion to adjourn? So moved. Uh, before we adjourn, I, I would just, uh, Tony, will you, you will, will not be um, available for our next meeting. Our next meeting will be in April, right? And he'll be gone by then. March. Then um, I'll adjourn the meeting in, uh, in, in your honor. I'll second the motion to adjourn. Or third it. Okay. All right, do I have a motion to adjourn? Yep. What? See you guys later in a few minutes. Thank you, Mike. Tony. Mike, is it the same? Thank you. Oh, we don't have to sign out? Okay, good. Oh, it's a different meeting. It's Just a different automatic? meeting. No <laughs> different meeting. Correct your calendar. See you guys. All right. James, thanks for coming.